Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good day, good day, you amazing listeners. Welcome back to your storytelling episodes, where I'm returning to the soul of Lilith audiobooks. Continuing with chapter 7, 8, and 9, I'll include the previous episodes as links in the episode notes the entire full album in SoundCloud that contains all of the Soul of Lilith audiobooks episodes in one spot. And of course, completely free because you lot are legends. So join me, mates, as we follow El Remy in today's episode. More mysteries, more madness, and more cool stuff. Like finding out more about Feraz, El Remy's brother, and Zoroba, for example. Feraz discovers just how much of a dreamer he might be thanks to El Remy, and Zoroba shares a part of her history with Feraz himself. Lots of mysteries here and a couple of questions answered, so let's jump on in. That afternoon, El Remy prepared to go out, as was his usual custom, immediately after the midday meal, which was served to him by Feraz, who stood behind his chair like a slave all the time he ate and drank attending to his needs with the utmost devotion and assiduity. Feraz, indeed, was his brother's only domestic, Zoroba's duties being entirely confined to the mysterious apartments upstairs and their still more mysterious occupant. El Remy was in a taciturn mood. The visit of the Reverend Francis and Struther seemed to have put him out, and he scarcely spoke, save in monosyllables. Before leaving the house, however, his humour suddenly softened, and, noting the wistful and timorous gaze with which Ferez regarded him, he laughed outright. <laughs> you are very patient with me, Ferez, and I know I am as sullen as a bear. You think too much, and you work too hard. Both thought and labour are necessary. You would not have me live a life of merely bovine repose. Ferez gave a deprecating gesture. Nay, but surely rest is needful. To be happy, God himself must sometimes sleep. You think so? Then it must be during his hours of repose and oblivion that the business of life goes wrong, and darkness and the spirit of confusion walk abroad. The Creator should never sleep. Why not, if he has dreams? For if eternal thought becomes substance, so as God's dream may become life. Poetic as usual, my fair ass, and yet perhaps you are not so far wrong in your ideas. That thought becomes substance even with man's limited powers, it's true enough. The thought of a perfect form grows up embodied in the weight and substance of marble with the sculptor. The vague fancies of a poet being set in ink on paper become substance in book shape, solid enough to pass from one hand to another. Even so may her God's mere thought of a world create a planet. It is my own impression that thoughts like atoms are imperishable, and that even dreams, being forms of thought, never die. But I must not stay here talking. Adieu! 
Do not sit up for me tonight, I shall not return. I am going down to the coast. To Ilthulcrombi? Questioned Feraz. So long a journey, and all to see that poor mad soul. Ilraimi looked at him steadfastly. No more mad, Feraz, than you are with your notions about your native star. Why should a scientist who amuses himself with reflections on a disk of magnetic crystal be deemed mad? Fifty years ago, the electric invention of Edison would have been called impossible, and he, the inventor, considered hopelessly insane. But now we know these seeming miracles are facts. We cease to wonder at them. And my poor friend with his disc is a harmless creature. His craze, if it be a craze, is as innocent as yours. But I have no craze. All that I know and see lives in my brain like music. And though I remember it perfectly, I trouble no one with the story of my past. And he troubles no one with what he deems may be the story of the future. Call no one mad because he happens to have a new idea, for time may prove such madness a merely perfected method of reason. I must hasten, or I shall lose my train. If it is the 2.40 from Waterloo, you have time. It is not yet two o'clock. Do you leave any message for Zeroba? None. She has my orders. Firaz looked full at his brother, and a warm flush colored his handsome face. Shall I never be worthy of your confidence? Can you never trust me with your great secret as well as Zeruba? Elremi frowned darkly. Again, this vulgar vice of curiosity. I thought you were exempt from it by this time. Nay, but hear me, Elraimi. Ferris said eagerly, distressed at the anger in his brother's eyes. It is not curiosity. It is something else. Something that I can hardly explain except... <sighs> oh, you will only laugh at me if I tell you, but yet... But what? It is as if a voice called me, answered... A voice... From those upper chambers, which you keep closed, and of which only Zeroba has the care. A voice that asks for freedom, and for peace. It is such a sorrowful voice, but sweet, more sweet than any singing. True, I hear it but seldom. Only when I do, it haunts me for hours and hours. I know you are at some great work up there. But can you make such voices ring from a merely scientific laboratory? Now, now you are angered. His large, soft, brilliant eyes rested appealingly upon his brother, whose features had grown pale and rigid. Angered? He echoed, speaking as if it seemed with some effort. Am I ever angered at your... Your fancies, for fancies they are, Ferraz. The voice you hear is like the imagined home in that distant star you speak of, an image and an echo on your brain. No more, no more. 
my great work, as you call it, would have no interest for you. It is nothing but a test experiment, which, if it fails, then I fail with it, and am no more El Remy Zaranos, but the merest fool that ever clamoured for the moon. He said this more to himself than to his brother, and seemed for the moment to have forgotten where he was, till suddenly, rousing himself with a start, he forced a smile. Farewell for the present, gentle visionary, he said kindly. You are happier with your dreams than I am with my facts. Do not seek out sorrow for yourself by rash and idle questioning. With a parting nod, he went out, and Ferez, closing the door after him, remained in the hall for a few moments in a sort of vague reverie. How silent the house seemed, he thought with a half-sigh. The very atmosphere of it was depressing, and even his favourite occupation, music, had just now no attraction for him. He turned listlessly into his brother's study. He determined to read for an hour or so and looked about in search of some entertaining volume. On the table he found a book open, a manuscript, written on vellum in Arabic, which, with curious uncanny figures and allegorical designs on the headings and margins, El Remy had left in there by mistake. It was a particularly valuable treasure which he generally kept under lock and key. Ferraz sat down in front of it, and, resting his head on his two hands, began to read at the page where it lay open. Arabic was his native tongue, yet he had some difficulty in making out this especial specimen of the language, because the writing was anything but distinct, and some of the letters had a very odd way of varnishing before his eyes, just as he had fixed them on a word. This was puzzling as well as irritating. He must have something the matter with his sight or his brain, he concluded, as these vanishing letters always came into possession again after a little. Worried by the phenomenon, he seized the book and carried it to the full light of the open window, and there succeeded in making out the meaning on one passage which was quite sufficient to set him thinking. It ran as follows. Wherefore, touching illusions and impressions, as also strong emotions of love, hatred, jealousy, or revenge, these nerve and brain sensations are easily conveyed from one human subject to another by suggestion. The first process is to numb the optic nerve. This is done in two ways. One, by causing the subject to fix his eyes steadily on a round shining case containing a magnet while you shall count two hundred beats of time. Two, by willfully making your own eyes the magnet and fixing your subject thereto, either of these operations will temporarily paralyze the optic nerve and arrest the motion of the blood in the vessels pertaining. Thus, the brain becomes insensible to external impressions and is only awake to internal suggestions, which you may make as many and as devious as you please. Your subject will see exactly what you choose him to see, hear what you wish him to hear, and do what you bid him do, so long as you hold him by your power, which if you understand the laws of light, sound, and air vibrations, and you may be able to retain for an indefinite period. The same force applies to the magnetizing of a multitude as of a single individual. 
Ferez read this over and over again, then returning to the table laid the book upon it with a deeply engrossed air. It had given him unpleasant matter for reflection. A dreamer, a visionary, he calls me. He mused, his thoughts reverting to his absent brother, full of fancies, poetic and musical. Now can it be that I owe my very dreams to his dominance? Does he make me subservient to him as I am? Or is my submission to his will only my desire? Is my madness or craze, or whatever he calls it, of his works? And should I be more like other men if I were separated from him? And yet, what has he ever done to me, save make me happy? Has he placed me under the influence of any magnet such as this book describes? Certainly not that I'm aware of. He has made my inward spirit clear of comprehension, so that I hear him call me even by a thought. I see and know beautiful things of which grosser souls have no perception. And am I not content? Yes. Surely I should be, though at times there seemed a something missing, a something to which I cannot give a name. He sighed, and again buried his head between his hands. He was conscious of a dreary sensation, unusual to his bright and feathered nature. The very sunshine streaming through the window seemed like true brilliancy. Suddenly, a hand was laid upon his shoulder. He started and rose to his feet with a bewildered air, then smiled as he saw that the intruder was only Zeroba. Chapter 8 Only Zeroba, gaunt, grim, fierce-eyed Zeroba, old and unlovely, yet possessing withal an air of savage dignity. As she stood erect, her amber-coloured robe bound about her with a scarlet girdle, and her grey hair gathered closely under a small coif of the same vivid hue. Her wrinkled visage had more animation in it than on the previous night, and her harsh voice grew soft as she looked at the picturesque glowing beauty of the young man beside her and addressed him. El Raimi has gone. Feraz nodded. He generally made her understand him either by sign or the use of the finger alphabet, at which she was very dexterous. On what quest? Feraz explained rapidly and mutely that he had gone to visit a friend residing at a distance from town. Then he will not return tonight, muttered Zoroba thoughtfully. He will not return tonight. She sat down and, clasping her hands across her knees, rocked herself to and fro for some minutes in silence. Then she spoke more to herself than to her listener. He is an angel or a fiend. Or maybe he is both in one. He saved me once from death. I shall never forget that. And by his power, he sent me back to my native land last night. I bound my black tresses and pearl with gold, and laughed and sang, I was young again. And with a sudden cry, she raised her hands above her head and clapped them fiercely together, so that the silver bangles on her arms jangled like bells. 
Oh, <laughs> as God liveth, I was young. You know what it is to be young. And she turned her dark orbs half enviously upon Ferez, who, leaning against his brother's writing table, regarded her with interest and something of awe. Or oh, you should know it. To feel the blood leap in the veins, while the happy heart keeps time, like the beat of a joyous cymbal. To catch the breath and tremble with ecstasy as the eyes one loves best in the world flash lightning passion into your own. To make companions of the roses and feel the pulses quicken at the songs of birds. To tread the ground so lightly as to scarcely know whether it is earth or air. This is to be young. Young! And I was young last night. My love was with me. My love. My more than lover. Seropa. Beautiful Seropa. He said and his kisses were as honey on my lips. Zeroba, pearl of passion, fountain of sweetness in a desert land. Thine eyes are fire in which I burn my soul. Thy round arms, the prison in which I lock my heart. Zeroba, beautiful Zeroba, beautiful. I, through the power of El Raimi, I was fair to see last night only. Last night. Her voice sank down into a feeble wailing, and Ferez gazed at her compassionately and in a little wonder. He was accustomed to see her in various strange and incomprehensible moods, but she was seldom so excited as now. Why do you not laugh? She asked, suddenly and with a touch of defiance. Why do you not laugh at me? At me, the wretched, Saroba, old and unsightly, bent and wrinkled, that I should dare to say I was once beautiful. It is a thing to make sport of an old, forsaken woman's dream of her dead youth. With an impulsive movement that was as graceful as it was becoming, Ferraz, for sole reply, dropped on one knee beside her, and, taking her wrinkled hand, touched it lightly, but reverently with his lips. So trembled, and great tears rose in her eyes. Poor boy, poor child. Ah, to me, a child to me, and yet a man, as God liveth a man. She looked at him with a curious steadfastness. Good Ferenth. Forgive me. I did you wrong. I know you would not mock the aged or make wanton sport of their incurable woes. You are too gentle. I would, in truth, you were less mild of spirit, less womanish of heart. Womanish? And Ferrers leapt up, stung by the word. He knew not why. His heart beat strangely. His blood tingled. It seemed to him that if he had possessed a weapon, his instinct would have been to draw it then. Never had he looked so handsome, and Zoroba, watching his expression, clapped her withered hands in a sort of witch-like triumph. Ha! The man's metal speaks. There is something more than the dream in you then, something that will help you to explain the mysteries. 
of your existence. Something that says, Ferraz, you are the slave of destiny. Up, be it a master. Ferraz, you sleep. Awake. And Zoroba stood up tall and imposing with the air of an inspired sorceress, delivering a prophecy. Ferraz, you have manhood. Prove it. Ferraz, you have missed the one joy of life. Love. Win it. Ferraz stared at her amazed. Her words were such as she had never addressed him before, and yet they moved him with a single uneasiness. Love. Surely he knew the meaning of love. It was an ideal passion, like the lifting up of life in prayer. Had not his brother told him that perfect love was unattainable on this planet? And was it not a word, the very suggestions of which could only be expressed in music? These thoughts ran through his mind while he stood inert and wondering. Then, rousing himself a little from the effects of Zeroba's outburst, he sat down at the table and, taking up a pencil, wrote as follows. You talk wildly, Zeroba. You cannot be well. Let me hear no more. You disturb my peace. I know what love is. I know what life is. But the best part of my life and love is not here, but elsewhere. Zoroba took the paper from his hand, read it, and tore it to bits in a rage. You foolish youth! Your love is the love of a dream. Your life is the life of a dream. You see with another's eyes. You think through another's brain. You are a mere machine. Played upon by another's will. But not forever shall you be deceived. Not forever. Here she gave a slight start and looked around her nervously, as though she expected someone to enter the room suddenly. Listen, come to me tonight. Tonight, when all is dark and silent. When every sound in the outside street is stilled. Come to me, and I will show you a marvel of the world. One who, like you is the victim of a dream. She broke off abruptly and glanced from right to left in evident alarm. Then, with a fresh impetus of courage, she bent towards her companion again and whispered in his ear, Come, but where? Up yonder, said Zoroba firmly, regardless of the utter amazement with which Ferraz greeted this answer. Up, up. Where El Remy hides his great secret, yes, I know he has forbidden you to venture there. Even so, has he forbidden me to speak of what he cherishes so closely? But we are slaves, you and I. Do you propose always to obey him? So be it as you will. But if I were you, a man, I would defy both gods and fiends if they opposed my liberty of action. Do as it pleases you. I, Zaroba, have given you the choice. Stay and dream of life, or come and live it till tonight. However, farewell. She had reached the door and vanished through it, before Ferris could demand more of her meaning, and he was left alone, a prey to the most torturing emotions. The vulgar vice of curiosity. That was the phrase his brother had used to him scarcely an hour agone. And yet here he was, yielding to a fresh fit 
of the intolerable desire that had possessed him for years to know El Remy's great secret. He dropped warily into a chair and thought all of the circumstances over. They were as follows. In the first place, he had never known any other protector or friend than his brother, who, being several years older than himself, had taken sole charge of him after the almost simultaneous death of their father and mother, an event which he knew had occurred somewhere in the East, but how or when he could not exactly remember, nor had he ever been told much about it. He had always been very happy in Oremi's companionship and had travelled with him nearly all over the world. And though they had never been rich, they always had sufficient wherewith to live comfortably. Though how even this small competence was gained, Ferraz never knew. There had been no particular mystery about his brother's life. However, till on one occasion, when they were travelling together across the Syrian desert, where they had come upon a caravan of half-starved Arab wanderers in dire distress from want and sickness. Among them was an elderly woman, at the extreme point of death, and an orphan child named Lilith, who was also dying. Elremi has suddenly, for no special reason, save kindness of heart and compassion, offered his services as a physician to the stricken little party, and had restored the elderly woman and widow almost miraculously, to health and strength in a day or two. This woman was no other than Zeroba. The sick child, however, a girl of about twelve years old, died. And here began the puzzle. On the day of this girl's death, Aremi, with sudden and inexplicable haste, had sent his young brother on to Alexandria, bidding him there to take ship immediately for the island of Cyprus and carry to a certain monastery some miles from Famagusta a packet of documents, which he stated were on the most extraordinary value and importance. Ferez had obeyed, and according to further instruction, had remained as a visitor in that Cyprian religious retreat, among monks unlike any other monks he'd ever seen or heard of, till he was sent for, whereupon, according to command, he rejoined Ilremi in London. He found him, somewhat to his surprise, installed in the small house where they now were. With the woman, Zeroba, whose presence was another cause of blank astonishment, especially as she seemed to have nothing to do but keep certain rooms upstairs in order. But all the questions Faraz poured out respecting her, and everything that had happened since their parting in the Syrian desert, were met by equivocal replies, or absolute silence on his brother's part and by and by the young man grew accustomed to this position. Day by day he became more and more subservient to Oremi's will, though he could never quite comprehend why he was so willingly submissive. Of course he knew that his brother was gifted with certain powers of physical magnetism, because he had allowed himself to be practiced upon, and he took a certain interest in the scientific developments of those powers, this being as he quite comprehended, one of the branches of study on which Oremi was engaged. He knew that his brother could compel response to thought from a distance, but as there were others of his race who could do the same thing, and as that sort of mild hypnotism was largely practiced in the East, where he was born, he attached no special importance to it. Endowed with various gifts of genius, such as music and poetry, 
and a quick perception of everything beautiful and artistic, Ferez lived in a tranquil little Eden of his own, and the only serpent in it that now and then lifted its head to his stout and perplexity was the inexplicable mystery of those upstairs rooms over which Zeropa had guardianship. The merest allusion to the subject excited Oremi's displeasure, and during the whole time they had lived together in that house, now nearly six years, he had not dared to speak of it more than a very few times, while Zeropa, on her part, had faithfully preserved the utmost secrecy. Now, she seemed disposed to break the long-kept rules, and Ferez knew not what to think of it. Is everything destiny, as El Remy says? Or shall I follow my own desires in the face of destiny? Shall I yield to temptation, or shall I overcome it? Shall I break his command, lose his affection, and be a free man? Or shall I obey him still, and be his slave? And what should I do with my liberty if I had it? I wonder. Womanish. What a word. Am I womanish? He paced up and down the room in sudden irritation and haughtiness. The piano stood open, but as ivory keys failed to attract him, his brain was full of other suggestions than the making of sweet harmony. Do not seek out sorrow for yourself by rash and idle questioning. So his brother had said at parting, and the words rang in his ears as he walked to and fro relentlessly, thinking, wondering and worrying his mind with vague wishes and foreboding anxieties, till the shining afternoon wore away, and darkness fell. Chapter 9 A rough night at sea, but the skies were clear, and the great worlds of God, which we call stars, throbbed in the heavens like lustrous lamps, all the more brilliantly for there being no moon to eclipse their glory. A high gale was blowing, and the waves dashed up on the coast of Ilfracrombe, with an organ-like thud and roar as they broke in high jets of spray, and then ran swiftly back again with the soft swish and ripple, suggestive of the downward chromatic scale played rapidly on well-attuned strings. There was freshness and life in the dancing winds. The world seemed well in motion and, standing aloft among the rocks and looking down at the tossing sea, one could realize completely the continuous whirl of the globe beneath one's feet, and the perpetual movement of the planet-studded heavens. High above the shore on a bare jutting promontory, a solitary house faced seaward. It was squarely built and surmounted with a tower, wherein one light burned fitfully, its pale sparkles seeming to quiver with fear as the wild wind fled past joyously, with a swirl and a cry like some huge seabird on the wing. It looked a dismissal residence at its best, even when the sun was shining, but at night its aspect was infinitely more dreary. It was an old house, and it enjoyed the reputation of being haunted, a circumstance which had enabled its present owner to purchase the lease of it for a very moderate sum. It was he who had built the tower, and whether because of this piece of extravagance or for other unexplained reasons, he had won for himself personally almost an uncanny 
almost as uncanny a reputation as the house had possessed before he occupied it. A man who lived the life of a recluse, who seemed to have no relations with the outside world at all, who had only one servant, a young German, whom the shrewder gossips declared was his keeper, who lived on such simple fare as certainly would never have contended a modern hodge earning twelve shillings a week. After it was finished, no one but himself ever entered, so far as the people of the neighborhood could tell. Under all these suspicions, circumstances, it was natural he should be avoided, and avoided he was by the good folk of Ilfa Crombe. In that pleasantly diverting fashion which causes provincial respectability to shudder away from the merest suggestion of superior intelligence. And yet, poor old Dr. Kremlin was a being not altogether to be despised. His appearance was perhaps against him in so much as his clothes were shabby and his eyes rather wild, but the expression of his meagre face was kind and gentle, and a perpetual compassion for everything and everybody seemed to vibrate in his voice and reflect itself in his melancholy smile. He was deeply occupied, so he told a few friends in Russia where he was born, in serious scientific investigations. But the friends, deeming him mad, held aloof till those investigations should become results. If the results proved disappointing, there would be no need to notice him any more. If successful, why then, by a mystic process known unto themselves, the friends would so increase and multiply that he would be quite inconveniently surrounded by them. In the meantime, nobody wrote to him or came to see him except El Remy, and it was El Remy now who, towards ten o'clock in the evening, knocked at the door of his lonely habitation and was at once admitted with every sign of deference and pleasure by the servant Carl. I'm glad you've come, sir, said this individual cheerfully. The here doctor has not been out all day, and he eats less than ever. It will do him good to see you. He is in the tower as usual, at work, inquired Oremi, throwing off his coat. Carl assented with a rather doleful look, and opening the door of a small dining room, showed the supper table laid for two. Oremi smiled. No, it's no good, Carl. It's very well meant on your part, but it's no good at all. You will never persuade your master to eat at this time of night, or me either. Clear all these things away, and make your mind easy. Go to bed and sleep. Tomorrow morning prepare as excellent a breakfast as you please. I promise you will do justice to it. Don't look so discontented. Don't you know the overfeeding kills the working capacity? And overstarving kills the man, working capacity and all. However, I suppose you know best, sir. In this case, I do. Your master expects me. Carl nodded, and Aramie, with a brief good night, ascended the staircase rapidly and soon disappeared. A door banged aloft, then all was still. Carl signed profoundly and slowly cleared away the useless supper. Well... How wise men can bear to starve themselves just for the sake of teaching fools is more than I shall ever understand, he said half aloud. But then I shall never be wise. I am an ass and always was an ass. A good dinner and a glass of good wine has always seemed to be better than all the science going. There's a shameful confession of ignorance and brutality together, if you like.
Where do you think you will go when you die, Carl? Say as a poor old hair doctor, and what do I say? I say, I don't know, mine hair, and I don't care. This world is good enough for me as long as I live in it. But afterwards, Carl, afterwards, he says, with his grey head shaking, and what do I say? Why, I say, I can't tell, mine ear, but whoever sent me here will surely have sent enough to look after me there. And he laughs, and his head shakes worse than ever. <laughs> uh, nothing can ever make me clever, and I'm very glad of it. He whistled a lively tune softly as he went to bed in his little side room off the passage and wandered again, as he had wandered hundreds of times before. What caused that solemn, low humming noise that throbbed so incessantly through the house and seemed so loud when everything else was still? It was a grave sound, suggestive of a long sustained oak held by the pedal bass. The murmuring of seas and rivers seemed in it, as well as the rush of the wind. Carl had grown accustomed to it, though he did not know what it meant, and he listened to it till drowsiness made him fancy it was the hum of his mother's spinning wheel at home in his native German village among the pine forests, and so he fell happily asleep. And this is where we'll stop for now, in the middle of chapter... Nine. Well, mates, I hope you enjoy the return of the soul of Lilith. El Raimi's mystery continues to unravel. Zoroba continues to tempt Feraz into the realm of the unknown, a land of curiosity and mystery. And El Raimi meets up with his friend's place, where he meets the lovely Carl. <laughs> Listeners, the mysteries keep coming, with some answers around Lilith herself, Feraz, and Zoroba's background revealed. I can't wait to read the next set of chapters from the Soul of Lilith novel. Absolutely loving it, mates, and I hope you are too. Just want to let you lovelies know that every single week I'm creating artwork on my Patreon website, which is open to the public. So what does that mean? It means that you can create art with me. So you don't have to be a Patreon supporter to view it, but Patreon supporters get to vote on what artwork is being made. I use artificial intelligence to create this artwork and showcase what you lovelies vote for and depending on what you vote for, is the art piece created. It can be wacky, it can be crazy, all sorts of awesome stuff is created just for each episode, and for the week as well. You can swing on by to check it out by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt and take a look at what's being made there, a new art piece every week. Mates, I now want to thank my patrons, people who put their hands in their pockets, say thank you, and directly cover the cost for this show where anything extra flies right back into each episode. Firstly, I want to thank my amazing O-Night T-Titan, Matto Star, the superhero that grapples my enemies King Overheads and the cruel tyrant Adobe Sweet, and wrestles their costs into the ground. Mate, thank you so, so, so much for supporting this show at this tier. For your support, I am so grateful. You really allow this show to flourish, and I'm constantly able to purchase new music, new sound effects, and cover costs directly associated with the Mid-Journey AI per month, which means I can showcase to everybody that visits the Patreon now, not just to ourselves. You really helped shape this podcast. Thank you so much, mate. Which of course means more artwork and fancier tools to work with to create artwork for each episode. I am now legitimately able to make original artwork for every single unique episode I upload. And that's thanks to supporters like you, buddy. Lots of love your way. 
An honorable mention to my lovely Maya, the Hall of Famer. May your cat's claws constantly be sharp and slashy. And a huge thank you to my white tea warlord, Leza Bauer. Mate, thank you so much, man, for your constant support. I'm hoping that your Halloween was fantastico and that your decorations were wonderful. I've seen them before, so to be honest, I know they were wonderful. Dudio, thank you so much. I was able to cover overheads this month thanks to your support and various other ongoing costs, actually. With anything extra, I put right back into costs for the website, Wondershare, and various application costs. But thanks to supporters like you, the cost to run this show is way, way, way at the back of my mind. Thank you, you legend. And my epic Earl Grain forces. But before I go through these lovelies, a very special thank you to Just Heather, who is a returning supporter, and Portia Williams, who is a new supporter. Thank you immensely for your kindness. Greatly appreciated, and thank you so much for supporting me. My Earl Grey enforcers are Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you all so much for supporting me. It means the world to me. And thank you for the emails wishing me well when I had food poisoning. I really do appreciate that. And also, Thank you for the emails asking whether or not I'm coming back to the soul of Lilith. I totally am, and this episode is testament to that promise. I'm glad you are enjoying this series. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.